fantastic. Hi, I'm Michelle Carlo. This week on Fish Out of Agua, Michelle, that would be me, gets on the bus. A 1968 VW bus driven by her Uncle Freddy and goes on quite a trip. Ha, not that kind. Get your mind out of the blotter. <laughs> and later on, we'll also take the Pelham 123, or more likely the 245, and learn the difference between being a toy and being up and how when writers are biters, they soon will be fighters. And that most of the time, what you see is what you get. Until the day it isn't, what you see is what you get. The Dramatics, 1971. with Fish Out of Agua. So, before we get into the next story, I kind of want to issue a trigger warning, something that did not exist in the 1970s, for some descriptive language common then that is no longer acceptable today. Sometimes, I swear, I think people are going to look back at the 1970s in about 50 years the way we look at the Tombstone Deadwood Wild West days in the United States today. I mean, think about it. It's like people that grew up in the 70s, we shouldn't be alive now. Well, anyway, in 1971, when this next story in Fish Out of Agua happens, China is admitted to the United Nations UN. Qatar becomes independent from Great Britain. Also in the UK, Education Secretary 
Margaret the Milk Snatcher Thatcher ends free school milk for children over the age of seven. She'll also be called a few more names. Just give it a few more years. In the United States, prisoners riot and take hostages at Attica Prison in New York, resulting in the death of 10 hostages and 29 inmates. And the Walt Disney World theme park in Orlando, Florida opens. Cigarette advertising ended on television, and the Vietnam War still rages on. Popular movies were The Andromeda Strain, Clute, and The French Connection. Popular on TV, All My Children, The Odd Couple, Mary Tyler Moore, and The Partridge Family. Hit songs included Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues, Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, and the song everyone of a certain generation loves to hate, but everyone from that generation knows all the words to, Don McLean's American Pie. Born in 1971, Sean Astin, son of Patty Duke, who would grow up to play Samwise Gamgee in Lord of the Rings, Snoop Dogg, also known as Calvin Brodus Jr., Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Amy Poehler, and Winona, Winona Ryder. Leaving us this year, Louis Sachmo Anderson, Gabrielle Coco Chanel, Andy Walhall's superstar Edie Sedgwick, and Jim Morrison, although there are still some who dispute that he actually died. As for me, I learned that the Spanish language wasn't the only secret in my family that summer. And as I'm sure happens in most families, what happens between them is no one else's darn business but a family affair. So poignantly and danceably sung by Sly and the Family Stone in 1971. They just love to learn And another child grows up to be Somebody you just love to burn Mom loves the both of them You see it's in the blood Both kids are good and bomb Blood's thicker than the mud It's a family affair
And now, Chapter 16 of Fish Out of Agua, Secret Summer. Every family has its own ritual for celebrating summer. Some go to the mountains, some to the beach. My family had its own private club, my father named after the July birthstone, the Ruby Club. Because through some freak of synchronized conception, on my father's side of the family, my grandpa Ezekiel, my father, my brother Kevin, me, three other of my seven cousins, and two of my four other uncles were all born in July. And every year we'd pick a day to celebrate all our birthdays together. We'd pile into Uncle Freddy's old green 1968 VW bus, or Uncle Papo's blue Chevy Impala with the bobble-headed Dalmatian on the dashboard, and we'd head upstate. Upstate meaning to a park or a lake outside of the five boroughs. We had done this every year that I could remember. Each member of my father's side of the family had a job in the Ruby Club. My immediately family brought Coppertone, blankets, a jug of lemonade, and a transistor radio with fresh batteries for the Mets game. Grandma Izzy and my uncle's wives brought pots of arrocangandules, trays of tostones and maduros, homemade potato and macaroni salads, and a big bowl of sliced avocados, red onions, and tomatoes. Uncle Freddy brought the beer, although I never remembered seeing him drink any, and Uncle Papa and Frank, Frankie brought the pernil, the roast baby pig that was the official Ruby Club birthday meal. Uncle Papa and Frankie would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to drive up to wherever we were going to be hanging out, dig the pit, and start the roast. The Ruby Club was extra special this year. It was the first one since half the family had moved to Florida, so it was a reunion, and it was happening on the same day as my 11th birthday. And, since I was the oldest cousin, my job was to keep the younger ones entertained and out of trouble. And I took this responsibility seriously, and I had thought up a new, fun car game to play on the drive up to Lake Welch called, Hey, Let's Give the Finger to All the Cars from New Jersey! Uncle Freddy and his wife, my Aunt Gloria, picked up my family at 8 o'clock in the morning. Their daughters, Nellie and Evelyn, sat in the back along with Uncle Papo's kids, my cousins Isabel, Damaris, and Willie. Grandma Izzy and Grandpa had already gone up with Papo and Frankie and their wives, so with my mother, father, Kevin, and me, that made 11 of us on the bus. And as soon as we got onto the highway, I had a feeling that the Ruby Club was going to be different this year. Oh, not just because everyone was together again. For one thing, the grown-ups were all whispering in Spanish, which, of course, was the signal that something was going on that we kids were not supposed to know about. And for another, we weren't going upstate. We were going in the wrong direction. Why are we going to Staten Island? I asked. You're going to meet someone special today, Uncle Freddy said. Once we were on Staten Island, we drove to a group of buildings and all got out to stretch our legs. The buildings looked a little like the hospital where my great-grandma Mari used to be, except here the grass was unkempt and long. In some places it came all the way up to my knees. Uncle Freddy went into one of the buildings and came out after a few minutes with a tallish, skinny boy who, even to my eleven-year-old eyes, didn't look right. His eyes looked weird, his pants were too big, and the bulge above his waistband showed that underneath his pants he was wearing a diaper. Say hello to your cousin Tony, Uncle Freddy said. He turned 12 years old last week, and we're taking him to the Ruby Club with us. 12? I I was supposed to be the oldest. 
birthday. No, no, today is my birthday. I ran over to my father and whispered, Why is he wearing a diaper? Is he a retard? And my father said, You look out for your cousin Tony. He's slow. You make sure everyone plays nice. Back on the bus, I tried to get my brother and cousins to play the Give the Finger to New Jersey game, but they just stared at Cousin Tony rocking back and forth. Everyone, that is, except Nellie and Evelyn, who sat huddled together as far away from the rest of us as they could. Finally, I gave up and got an RC cola out of the cooler, which Tony grabbed out of my hand and sprayed all over the bus. What did I tell you, Michelle? My father said. You stop fooling around and play nice. I was so angry I had gotten blamed for spilling the soda. I thought up a new game to get back at Cousin Tony. Let's throw the retard's diaper out the window. I convinced my brother, Willie, and Isabel to hold Tony down while Damaris and I ripped his, thankfully empty, diaper off. Nellie and Evelyn watched in silence as I flung it out the back window, where it flew over the roof and landed on the driver's side windshield. Uncle Freddy skidded across a couple of thankfully empty lanes on highway, and we ended up on the highway shoulder with a New York State Trooper's car pulling up right behind us. It doesn't matter where your family comes from. You do not want a New York State Trooper to stop your car. Uncle Freddy and my father went with the trooper back to his car, and I could see them pointing to the back of the bus. I ducked beneath the, behind the cooler. A minute later, we were on the road again. I peeked out and saw the trooper standing by the side of the road holding his hat. He was shaking his head, and I could swear he was trying really hard not to laugh. My father didn't think it was funny, though. When we got to the lake, he grabbed me and took me over behind some trees, away from everyone else, and ordered me to make up with Cousin Tony and tell him I was sorry. Only, I wasn't. He can't even talk, I said. And why do I have to share my birthday with a retard? I didn't mean for it to come out like that, but it did. And I had never seen my father so angry. He almost ripped his pants getting his belt off, and I was scared because that would have been the first time he had ever really hit me. But instead of hitting me, he threw his belt on the ground and did something worse. He told me he was ashamed of me. Cousin Tony didn't know how to act any better, but I did. And then he walked away. I almost wished he had hit me instead. I went back to the Ruby Club, but for me, it was ruined. My cousins had been told to keep away from me, and I could hear them all playing and swimming. Nellie and Evelyn sneaked dirt onto my food more than once. Uncle Freddy and Tony stayed on one blanket with my mother and father and the other grown-ups. Even my grandpa Ezekiel ignored me. Eventually, I just went and sat on the edge of a quilt until it was time to go home. I wished I hadn't done what I did. And I wish I'd never seen Cousin Tony. The ride home was the quietest trip the Ruby Club ever had. After we got home, my father sat me down and told me about Cousin Tony. His mother was Uncle Freddy's first wife, who had died having him. And Uncle Freddy couldn't take care of Tony by himself, so he put him in a special school where they could take care of him. And that was why he had gotten so angry with me. Because if I was bigger, if I was stronger... If I was smarter than someone, then I was supposed to look out for them and not exploit them. Because even though I wasn't really the oldest anymore, I was still supposed to set an example for the younger kids. Exploit? 
I said. I don't understand. Make them feel bad, my father said. And don't pretend you don't know. And how do you think Nellie and Evelyn felt with you making fun of their brother? I hadn't thought of it that way before. The next time I saw my cousin Tony, he was on television. My mother always left the TV on to Channel 7 News while she was cooking dinner. And back then, there was a young, idealistic reporter who, when he was young, had walked with the young lords and had specialized in investigative news, sometimes risking his life to fight social injustice. You may remember him. His name was Geraldo Rivera. Now, Geraldo Rivera had spent months secretly filming the horrible conditions in a home for the mentally disabled on Staten Island called Willowbrook. Now, I don't know what made me look up for my homework at that exact moment, but even though I had only seen him that one day, I swore that right there in living color was my oldest cousin, chained to a chair, wearing nothing but a diaper. Mom! Mom! Oh my God! Look, it's Cousin Tony! My mother ran into the living room and looked at the television. Her eyes went huge, and she quickly shut it off. Oh, Ma! Kevin said. It's not him, she said. Finish your homework. When my father came home from work, I told him what I had seen, and he too said, It wasn't him. But the next couple of days were full of whispered phone calls in Spanish. Then late one night, soon after the TV spotting incident, I woke up to the sound of Uncle Freddy and my father leaving the house, and I could hear Uncle Freddy was crying. That next day, when I came back from school, my father was already home, and he sat me down. And he told me that Cousin Tony was now in a place where no one would ever hurt him again. And that he and Uncle Freddy were very, very proud of me. Because I spoke up about what, because by speaking up about what I had seen, I had looked out for Cousin Tony when no one else could. And we never spoke another word about it. I've only seen Cousin Tony a couple more times since the day at that lake. One of them was at my father's funeral and another was at Uncle Freddy's. I don't even know if he's still alive. That last Ruby Club was over 40 years ago, but if I close my eyes, I can still see us at Lake Welch, my mother, father, and grandparents eating and squinting in the sun, my cousin splashing in the water, Uncle Freddy feeding Cousin Tony, and Cousin Tony clapping his hands and laughing, and two of my aunts, my titis, both six and seven months pregnant each at the time, sitting together picking at a a plate of roast pig, one sipping from a can of Rheingold and the other smoking a cigarette. It was truly a more innocent time back then. In fact, the end of an era for everyone. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, where it's time to showcase Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're mining the talent at our day job, a also known as fashion land again, because there's a lot of it. So let's just get right to it. Hi, this is Michelle Carlo with our guest artist interview for Fish Out of Agua. And I'm sitting here with another fine, wonderful human from my day job. Shh, I'm mining fashion land for all its talent. So I'm sitting here with Leo, who's a artist, 
cartoonist and illustrator who also has a day job, like me, a working artist. So let's talk with him and find out what the deal is. Hey, Leo. Hey, Michelle. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to be in Fashion Land and what you do for Fashion Land and how that you reconcile what you do here with what you do for your personal life. And tell us about that. Well, I am a native New Yorker, born and Yay! raised in Queens. Oh, Queens. Oh, yeah. yeah, come what, on. What hood? What hood? Oh, Elmhurst. Elmhurst, represent. Oh, my God. Hampton Street. Oh, yeah. All about that Judge Street. I'm right there with you. Uh, well, I'm over here in fashion land, you know, ap appropriating ideas for my own personal twisted meanings. <laughs> Shh. Don't tell nobody. It's a secret. Yeah. It's always a secret. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just hang out, and I'm in hospitality in fashion land. I make everybody feel comfortable and happy and make sure they're wined and dined and happy. You know, keeping the morale up, always. Yeah, sometimes they need to be. You know, it, it's a client-driven business that we do here, so if they're not happy, we don't have a friggin' job. So it's like, they smile in your face all the time, they want to take your place, the backstabbers. Sometimes, not always. Well, for the good most part, I want to agree with that, but yeah. let's just keep it at that for now. Yeah. Keep it light and light and happy. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about your art, Leo. Well, uh, I mostly like things with fangs. Ah. Uh, I like fangs. I like sharp teeth. I like ooze. I like blood. I like veins. I like all that weird, freaky stuff. So you like all that chupacabra shit? Oh, I'm absolutely into the chupacabra and all of the, the fun stuff about it. Okay, and um, so... This, this, so this goes from from your from from your heritage from your background, yes. A little bit, yes. It's related. Okay, so are you, are you Puerto Rican, Dominican, or Cuban? I always forget. I am, or are you a combination of everything? I am a combination Cuban, Chilean, American. Whoa! You holding got the Caribbean and the South America. We're all about that. The CC holding it down. So if so, if you guys have coquito on one side, on the other side, what do you call it? Ponche de crema. Ponche de crema. Okay, yeah, the South American thing. That's the All right, one. so, um, so okay, so going back to the fang, so you would say that your work is kind of like gothy? Uh, I would say it's dark. I wouldn't say gothy. Okay. I feel like gothy is way too detailed. I feel like I keep it simple, straight lines. Although I would like to experiment with that one day, but I just keep my doodles very light and happy. Okay, so so primarily, are you doing comic books? What what are you doing for for your art for the outside? Well, right now, I'm actually working on a couple things for apparel and some hats. Um, oh, you mean like illustrations? Illustrations, yes. But they're going to be cut and sewn into hats, and we're working on a couple other things also. So is this uh, for print or for the web? For print. Oh, wow. Okay, um, I guess you can't divulge the publication as yet because it hasn't printed. Indeed. You ah. have to keep it nice and silent for now. But it's always it's, it's silent. 2017 is coming down. That's yeah, the one. Hell, hell yeah, you know, I, I made a promise to myself this year, Leo, that this is going to be the year I turned pro. Oh, we all got to do it. We all have to make that promise this year. So do you think that um, being, being a Latino man, do you think that that um, influences what you do? Does it hinder what you do? Does it enhance what you do? What is your experience... A, being who you are, the age you are, Leo's young people. I don't even think he's 30 yet. Don't um, even say that. Oh, my God. So, no, but anyway, <laughs> I mean, you know, being the person that you are here at the time that you are, how do you feel that that A, influences the artwork that you do, and B, influences how you have to behave at the day job? I feel like it helps and it hinders at the same time. I how? can I can connect with... Some people easier than others just because we don't have that language barrier. Mm. And for some people, it's 
Uh, but what language barrier? You speak English real well. Oh, yeah, real Doble good. Doble real well. Damn. Very good. Very oh, good. No, no, I heard him speaking Spanish to the other guy before. I was like, what? Anyway. It's the power of the camouflage. Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I got it too. We're both, we're both light-skinned Latinos, so there's that whole thing about like, and I hate to use this word, we could pass. Oh, yeah. Almost. 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 Until, until they get your ID and they see your last name. They're like, wait a minute. Exactly. You well, get back over there. Ta talk about the influence, A, on your art, and B, about how you need to comport yourself here as opposed to how you do your art. Ooh, I want to say it's probably a night and day difference. Okay, well, explain. Explica. Well, in the daytime, I, I feel sort of like Bruce Wayne, where I'm sort of stuck in my, in my set where I have to act and think and be a certain way but nighttime rolls around and Batman's outside he's crushing the villains he's outside making the moves and running around and just protecting well I'm not protecting people at least not today but <laughs> uh, you know I try to assist where I can but uh it's just uh I mean my background sort of helped me my mother showed me a lot of art when I was a lot younger. My father, not so much, but he helped me in other ways. Um, what kind of art did your mom show you? Uh, very influential art from Cuba. She had some really? stuff, yes. She had some uh, clippings and some newspapers and posters and stuff that she saved from Cuba when she, wow. when she came over here. How old was she when she came here? Ooh, very young. I want to say like 26, 27. Wow. She was, she was very young. Have you ever been to Cuba? Oh, that's that's on. That's on gotta the be on the radar, dude. It's gotta be on the radar. I still have a grandmother there, so I mean. You do? Yes. Oh my God, lucky you! I want to go to Cuba. Can 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 like she adopt me we or can, something? We can we can all go. It'll yeah, well, we're all putinas, you know. Anyway, um, it's so the sangre that binds. So yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is true. Um, so tell me a bit about your artwork. Tell me about your imagery. Tell me about your medium. Tell me about uh. Yeah, the whole the whole deal, the whole Let's dealio. See, I'm into I'm very simple, pen and paper, sharpie, uh, acrylic paint when I can, oil when I have the time. But everything is very very minimal. I mean, I, I just love sharpies and black and white. But I mean, I do love color as well. Big so, fan of color. What what what's your imagery a lot? Imagery, it's like I said, it's sharp teeth, very appalling images. So do, would you say it's representational? Do you make up creatures? I, I feel Is it like cartoony? it's like the internal demons I have inside me that cannot escape. They're just locked away. Oh, okay. So you went into the cave in your mind and you dragged out these creatures and, and that's how you see the light of day? The mind cave. Uh, it's always darkest in the dark cave. But, I mean, you have to go outside to see the light sometime. Get some new images. Oh, but, I mean, cool. it's, it's pretty crazy when you're alone with your thoughts and shit yeah. just starts coming out of you. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Um, and I have to make a full disclaimer here. When uh, this, we are in a different building now, where we were working when Leo and I first met. And I used to like walk in on Leo often, and he'd be just like drawing like mad, and he'd be like looking up like, eh, and I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> and that was just like so cool because like you was just like so deep into concentration, like you didn't even know that what was around you, oh, who no. was around you. I have permanent headphones on when I'm drawing or when I'm sketching or illustrating. It's just. I get an, an escape from fashion land, you know? It's like a 10-minute yeah, well, you know, breather without running outside. <laughs> well, we need, we need to have the day job to fuel the night job. Believe oh, me. Oh, yeah. Ain't it the truth? I feel you like know? I'm burning the, the candle at both ends. Honey, but... I'm burning the candle in the middle, and it's going out the <laughs> fucking felt ends. So um, where, where, where do you see your art going in the next five years? Hopefully on some canvases in a gallery somewhere. That'd be the top tier of my, yeah. my artistic fantasy. But I mean, I would definitely love to get into uh, making some comics or stuff. I definitely have some friends who dabble, but 
I feel like I don't have the, the time for it, you know? I feel like everything is so meticulously planned for like, oh, you have this time to do this, you have this time for that, and then at the end of the day, when I get home, I'm like exhausted. No, it's, it's true, it's, it's hard. It's hard to keep, keep pushing that, you know, when your life is so draining. But I mean, I'm known to complain. There's people who have it worse than me who do so much more, the, so. It's true, and I complain all the friggin' time Praise also. to them, praise and to them. It's just like, you know, when you have the day job and the night job, and I, honestly, Leo, I've been doing this for so long, I don't know any other way to live. <laughs> I, I don't know any, way to, any, any, any friggin' other way to live. It's just, just like normal for me at, at this point. I, I need to get on that level because I, I still feel drained, but maybe I just need some coquito and uh, we'll all power up. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. 20 years from now, you'll be me, I guess. No, 20 years from now, you'll be better than me because, like, like I, you don't want to be in fashion land 20 years from now. Oh, my God. Nothing nothing bad about fashion land. Fashion land is awesome. Well, it has its perks, but, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, it, it has many freaking perks. This is a gilded cage we reside in. It is. It's, it's a very gilded cage. <laughs> There's a lot worse places to work. Oh, absolutely. Honey, please. Please, please, please. So, um, tell me about who were some of your influences as an as um, growing up that that you either emulate or think about when you do your art. Ooh. I don't mean em- I mean I don't mean emulate a copy, but who who so spoke who to you? Inspired yeah, who inspired you? you? Who spoke to you? Ooh. Who do you try to be better than? Ooh. I like that one because I, I have a writer that I try to be better than. Oh, that's that's really hard. I mean, the one person that definitely comes to mind is probably Ralph Steadman. Just okay, that whole. Hanging out with, uh, what's his name, Dr. Gonzo and uh, Hunter Thompson mm. and, like, that whole thing. And I just really loved how, like, their friendship influenced his art so much. Because Ralph Steadman, before, he would, like, draw all these clean-cut, like, imagery. And then after he started hanging out with Hunter Thompson, everything changed. Like, his style was, like, wild. He started using these crazy lines and just everything was so chaotic. Do you think drawings. Hunter tabbed him? Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, Hunter, please pass that. Let's, oh my let's all God. get on that together. That, that is so funny. That's so funny. And, you know, and w- the other thing that I like is when you hear about people that were contemporaries and were friendly and you were like, wait, those two were friends? Exactly. And, I, and oh, God, I can't think of one right now. I want to say Michel Duchamp, but like some really straight like scientist dude, and I can't think of the name. But it's just like, <laughs> what? They were friends? But yeah, of course, they were running in the same circles at the time. Yeah. It's all that, that fashion. Do you, do you, do you have a, um, an art school background or are you self-taught? Oh, I, I have a fashion background. Really? I went to uh, the Art Institute of New York. Oh, and okay. And I studied uh, graphic design and uh, illustration. Oh, okay, cool. I went to SVA myself. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I went like from, almost neighbors. Yeah, kind of, sort of. I mean, I, and I and ended up being a, a copy human for, for, for Fashion Land, but you never know where life is going to take you. Yeah, you know, we all have our, our beginning journey, yeah. and here we are, we're still riding it out. And we're still riding it out, and we're still doing the do. Next, that. So, Leo, uh, where can we see any of your fabulous coming up in the future? you have anything you um, want to talk about or promote? Uh, a website? A website, a Twitter, or Facebook. Uh, or? Let's throw out an Instagram. Uh, snake DDL. Snake. Snake. Culebra. Snake. Serpiente. Yeah, I'm Snake DDL. On uh, I'm pretty much on all the social medias. Uh, I want to shout out to the Grussel. Shout out to Bogdan. Uh, Death X Design. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think that's it for the shout-outs for the moment. Okay, so I'm going to ask you one last question. This is really sure. hard. Yes. Whose food rocks more, Cubano or Chilean? Oh, oh snap. All right, uh, that's a hard one. Let's go, I have to say with Cubano, because I'm all about 
the pernil, I'm all about the congree. Oh my God, it's so good. Caribbean, Caribbean, Caribbean. Caribbean. All right, Leo, awesome sauce. So we're going to go get a glass of wine and chill. And, I'm going to get some um, whiskey and we're going to get you some wine. All right, all right. Thanks a lot, Leo. My pleasure. Catch Thank you, later. you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michelle. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. In 1972, when the next story happens, the average cost of a new house was $27,550. The average income per year was $11,800. Average monthly rent was $165 a month. And that brand new Ford Pinto would set you back $2,078. Oh, and if you wanted to play Frisbee after you drove your car to a lake, you'd be shelling out an extra 94 cents. In the world, at the Munich Olympics that year, 11 Israeli athletes were taken hostage and murdered by the Palestinian group Black September. A plane crashed in the Andes Mountains and in Chile, and when the survivors were rescued two months afterwards, it was revealed that they survived by practicing cannibalism. In Northern Ireland, 14 unarmed Catholic protesters were gunned down by the British Army in what would become known worldwide as Bloody Sunday. In the United States, five White House op- operatives are arrested for burglarizing the offices of the Democratic National Committee, the beginnings of the Watergate stand scandal. And, finally, the last U.S. ground troops were withdrawn from Vietnam. Popular movies, The Godfather, Dirty Harry, The Last Picture Show, and A Clockwork Orange. On television, we watched Monty Python's Flying Circus, Sesame Street, and The Brady Bunch. Cameron Diaz, Marlon Wayans, Jenny McCarthy, and Notorious Big were born this year. Singer Mahalia Jackson, Dan Blocker, who played Hoss on the TV show Bonanza, and animator Max Fleischer left us. And me? I spent a lot of time listening to Michael Jackson with my best friend Darlinda. In fact, Darlinda and I loved him so much. We just loved Jackson 5 and Michael Jackson so much, we made up our own words to some of his songs. Funny, I can remember it as if it was yesterday. The two of us in the schoolyard of junior high school 127, no middle school in those days, standing there singing at the top of our lungs. He bops in the treetops all night long, humping and a-bumping and singing his song. All the little who is on 42nd Street love to tell the robin go beat your meat, rockin' robin. Oh yeah, nothing like a 1970s child.
And now, Chapter 17 of Fish Out of Agua. Bure Avenue sucks. Run! Darlinda said. I sprinted through the number six train as it careened down the elevated tracks. Darlinda was right behind me. And just as I leapt between two cars, the train lurched, swinging me into the triple row of rubber-coated chains that were the only things keeping me from falling onto the whizzing tracks below. The train screeched, and so did Darlinda as we both dashed into the next car. By the time the train pulled into the next station, Darlinda and I were in the front car. The doors opened and we stood, absolutely still, in front of them. As they began to close, Darlinda grabbed my arm and we leapt onto the station's platform, leaving the man who had been chasing us all the way through the train behind. We turned to see where we were and we yelled loud enough for the man to hear, Pure Avenue sucks! The train pulled away with the man glowering at the doors. We turned and took out our markers. We had one more station to hit up before our afternoon's work was done. The man chasing us was most likely the infamous early 70s NYPD undercover cop, Officer Schwartz, whose job was to stop kids like us, graffiti writers. In the seventh grade, I gave up drawing peace sign-wearing hippies for my tag, my new nickname, Shell194. I chose Shell because it was already part of my name and the letters looked nice together. Darlinda's tag was grape because they were fun to draw. The 194 was an afterthought for me. Most people's tags were suffixed with the number of the street they lived on, but there were no numbered streets where I lived, so I took 194 from a street near our new favorite stop on the number 6 train, Bure Avenue. Dorlinda and I had an unspoken rule of yelling Bure Avenue sucks at the top of our lungs every time we visited the station, which was a lot. We wrote our tags on it and every other station stop on the number six line with markers and spray paint along with the insides of the subway cars bus seats and brick walls we did this on every unmarked surface we could find every chance we got and we were far from the only two kids doing this an entire subculture had formed seemingly overnight many credit a young messenger from Washington Heights who called himself Tacky 183 as one of the first graffiti writers, but whatever its source, graffiti, or graph, quickly spread citywide. Some writers were black and Latino, such as Stay High 149, Super Cool 223, and Ray B 954. Others were white, like Pistol, Tracy 168, and Zephyr, most were boys, although there were a few girls, such as Barbara and Eva 62, and later on, Lady Pink. These writers, and some others, were up, which meant their tags could be seen throughout the city, and they were considered among the kings and queens of their time. And there were so many more writers that I could possibly have named here, so if you wrote graffiti back then, and you're listening now, and your name was left out, my apologies, but you were most likely immortalized in grapes tag book. Now there were also the toys, or the toy writers, the group that I belonged to. Toys were writers who may have tagged a lot where they lived, but didn't have real train fame. And being called a toy was a derogatory term, the equivalent to being on someone's D-list today. And even though I'd hit up tons of the insides of subway cars, I hadn't yet hit a car's outside, the rite of passage for a writer. 
Now, you could hit the outside of a subway car with one of the following. A throw-up, which was a quickly filled-in bubble-letter bubble rendition of your tag. A piece, a more elaborate tag with designs such as stars, swirls, and force fields. Or a top-to-bottom. The most ambitious and respected of all. This would cover at least an entire third of a subway car, from its roof to below its doors, including the windows. And that would be a writer's masterpiece. And to hit the outside of a subway car, you needed to have three things. An an uninterrupted block of time with a non-moving train, a lot of spray paint, and fat caps. A non-moving empty train or a layup was easiest to pin down at night or on weekends when trains would park on the dormant stretches of express tracks. I could see the number six train layups from my bathroom window at home. An alternative was to sneak into the yards where trains were kept for cleaning and maintenance. There was such a yard in Middletown Road, walking distance from where I lived, but I hadn't yet had the courage to go. Pearl Paint, an artist supply store on Canal Street in Manhattan, was the best place to buy spray paint. But most riders couldn't afford to buy ten or more cans at a time, so they racked them up. Shoplifted them. Finally, fat caps with the nozzles on cans of Ezeon spray starch and some other cleaning products. The wider openings on the caps allowed for a more diffuse spray, which was essential for covering large areas quickly and evenly. Riders would go into supermarkets, delis, and bodegas to rack the caps, sometimes decimating an entire shipment at one time. So, if your mother ever had to bring back a can of Ezeon spray starch to the store because it came home with no cap, now you know why. After school, Darlinda and I would go to the 149th Street Grand Concourse subway station where the number 2, 4, and 5 trains converged. 149th Street station was both a subway platform and a clubhouse. Riders would use it as a meeting spot before going off to tag, as a conference room to plan the next pieces, and as a theater watching the trains as they rolled by. Whenever a piece passed by or stopped at the station, the riders would assess it, giving praise where it was due and scorn where it was deserved. There was a distinct code of honor among writers. You had to come up with your own tag, style, and designs. And if you were caught copying someone who had become known before you, you were called a biter, and other writers could slam you by scribbling hot 110 over your tags. It even became a catchphrase. When writers are biters, they soon will be fighters. At 149th Street, It didn't matter if you were black, white, Latino, or a mixture of the three. And it didn't matter if you were a boy or a girl. Writing culture was achievement-driven and egalitarian. What mattered was your tag and how well you did it. Some people tried to over-intellectualize graffiti writing, saying it was a product of the the post-civil rights, post-hippie Vietnam era or dismiss all of us as disenfranchised children of the oppressed whose voices needed to be heard, or, in this case, seen. Me, I just knew that the act of writing graffiti was exciting, forbidden, dangerous, and therefore cool. And it was a society where if I did the work, I could belong. One afternoon after school at 149th Street, Dorlinda was getting autographs in a sketchbook that she kept as a tag book. And if she still has that book today, it's a slice of history and is definitely worth a lot of money. 
I had scored a seat on the bench and was about to pull out my notebook and start scribbling some more ideas when I heard someone yell, Whoa, grape! I looked up and saw a train with a masterpiece on half the entire car. It looked amazing. It had Dorlinda's character made from a bunch of grapes and three force fields. Dorlinda stood on the platform smiling and receiving congratulations from the other riders. She was now officially up and could suffix war, W-A-R, riders already respected with all her future tags. Upon seeing Darlinda's masterpiece with its colors and swirls, a few questions raced through my mind. When, where, and with whom had she done this? And why wasn't I invited? I realized that the only way that I could be completely accepted and respected by my fellow riders and keep my best friend was to no longer be a toy. I had to create my own masterpiece. Dorlinda and I were also friends with a small group of riders who'd hit up a few trains but weren't as up as the 149th Street crew. And while hitting the insides of the number six alone one afternoon, I ran into three of them. Mad Mark and Rod 15, twin brothers from Parkchester who wrote TFT, The Fantastic Twins, and their friend Gabe 177. They told me they were going to the Zariga Avenue layups that weekend, the ones I could see from outside my bathroom window and they wanted me to be their lookout. Well, yeah, only if I get to do a piece, I said. Sure, they said, just get your own paint. And with that, I was invited to do my first train masterpiece. The nerves kicked in, though, before I even had paint. I was hesitant to buy the cans from my neighborhood's hardware store because I was afraid the owner would tell my father what I was up to. And I was too chicken to go all the way down to Pearl Paint and Canal Street in Manhattan alone. So I racked the cans from a different store up by Beer Avenue, two red for the fill-ins, one black for the outline, and a silver can for designs. I stashed the cans in the bottom of my closet, went to the A&P, and breezed out ten minutes later with four fat caps in my hand, then proudly made my way back home to sketch out my piece. Luckily for me, no one was tracking my artistic path from kittens to fashion design to vandalism. And that Saturday, toting my completed sketch, I hopped, or snuck, onto the train at the Zariga Avenue stop. The token clerk scolded me without looking up from his newspaper. Mark, Rod, and Gabe were already up on the platform, and after giving me a quick overview of my duties, they climbed down to the tracks to start their work. My job as the lookout was to stand at the end of the platform, pretending to wait for a train. And when I saw someone come up onto the platform... I had to whistle to cue them to duck between the cars. And when a train pulled into the next station, I had to do a different whistle to let them know. It was nerve-wracking. I couldn't keep my eyes off of Westchester Square train station for one second, and every male passerby in black lace-up shoes looked like Officer Schwartz. About an hour and a few false alarms later, the boys returned to the platform, thanked me, and said, Let's go. Wait, I said, it's my turn. Aw, you sure you want to do this show? Rod said. It's dangerous. I would have hit you up, but now I'm out of paint. Well, I have my own paint for my own piece. The boys reluctantly promised to look out for me, and I climbed onto the tracks. Shell, wait, Gabe said. Look out for the third rail. Be careful when you stand on top. Some of the wood is broke. Third rail, 
broken? You have to stand on it? I knew that trains ran on electricity and that the middle rails held the juice, but I hadn't thought about the reality of doing a graffiti masterpiece out in the open in the middle of live subway tracks at all. And I suddenly remembered another writer's kid brother who had recently died. He was surfing off the side of a D train and he fell. But the train was moving too slow for the fall to kill him. He was thrown clear of the tracks, but in a daze crawling along the tracks, he touched the third rail and was electrocuted. I stopped walking and looked down at the tracks. Once you were past the train's platform, there were spaces, big enough to fall through between the wooden planks. And since the boys had hit up the choice spots close by, I had to walk further out between the stations. I forced myself to keep walking until Gabe yelled, Train! And I was so startled that I ran between the closest two cars, stepping on the wooden beam on top of the third rail. Luckily, that one wasn't broken, and the train wasn't that close. Gabe was always a jumpy kid. I was terrified to move, but more than anything, I was even more determined than ever to do my piece. About 30 minutes later, I was done. I walked back to the boys, this time along the sidewalkway the track workers used, which wasn't nearly as dangerous. They'd all stayed and watched out for me. I climbed up onto the platform and Mark said, That was quick. And then, What happened to you? In my rush, I had pointed a can of red paint the wrong way and sprayed the front of my shirt. It looked as if I had been shot. When I got home, I threw my shirt out the bathroom window and spotted Mad Mark's, Rod's, and Gabe's pieces, but I couldn't see mine. I looked for it every chance I had over the next few days, but never saw it. A couple of weeks later, Darlinda and I got off on 149th Street and watched the train pull into the station with my piece. I never expected to see it there. I didn't know trains could and did switch lines. I looked at my creation and saw it was a pretty sad-looking piece. In fact, a disaster. It barely reached the windows. The outline was crooked, and the different-sized letters reflected my shaky nerves on on the layup that afternoon. The last L and shell hardly had any fill-in as I had run out of red, and I had failed to do any designs as I had forgotten to bring the silver paint with me. But I had done it. I had my masterpiece. I wasn't the only one who'd noticed it. Some of the other writers had seen it too, and they laughed. Who is that toy? (laughs) I don't think any of them realized it was me, and now I certainly wasn't going to admit it either. I wanted to cry. All that work, all that fright, all that everything, for nothing. Dorlinda had seen my piece, too. She turned to me and said, You want to go hit up the six? So Dorlinda and I went along the number six line just the way we used to, hitting up an entire train car by car and then getting out and waiting for the next train to come. We even got off at Bure Avenue, where we unscrewed some light bulbs and threw them off the platform, yelling, Bure Avenue sucks! Just as we had used to, but my heart wasn't into it. And finally, it was time to go home. We didn't even go up the extra stop to Pelham Bay. We just crossed over to the downtown platform. On the way back, Dolinda said, Fuck them, Shell. You did it. So what if it didn't come out so good? 
It never does the first time. You'll do better later. Just practice and oh snap, it's Schwartz. Run! Officer Schwartz never would catch Dorlinda or me. I would do a couple of more pieces before I quit graffiti writing for good, but what was more important was that Dorlinda and I were still friends. We had gone a long way together, from gold reading group in second grade to the second smartest class in our entire junior high school, 7E2. But that was all about to change. And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you've liked what you've heard today or on a past episode, why not start 2017 off with a resolution you'll want to keep? Sponsor us! Sponsor me! Come on, guys, you could do it for as little as $1 an episode. That's the cost of a small cup of awesome corner bodega cafe pilon or a couple of sips of a shitty Starbucks. It's easy. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on Radio Free Brooklyn, click on the green Sponsor the Show button, and let Patreon take care of the rest. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with a song that speaks a little bit to how I felt about what it seemed I was quickly becoming. See you next week. And the sign said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. So I took my hair up under my hat and I went in to ask him why. He said, you look like a fine, upstanding young man. I think you do. So I took off my hat. I said, imagine that. So I jumped on the fence and he yelled at the house, hey, what gives you the right to put up a fence to keep me out or to keep Mother Nature in? If God was here, he'd tell you to your face, man, you're some kind of sinner. Around the plate at the end of it all I didn't have a penny to pay 